Well, good morning, LCM. Good morning. Today's date is August 14th, 2022, and we are all hearing the clear call to become officers in this house. It is the will of our Father that we continue the pace of raising up leaders in this house, households that are rising up to the responsibility to become mature, growing in courage and strength while knowing the need of support from experienced leaders that can actually help and aid them in every way. Church, are you hearing the call to keep in step with the Spirit's direction for our congregation? Is that coming through loud and clear? Are you sensing the anticipation of God's ability to make us into qualified officers? Are you detecting that we are being trained to take on greater exploits for God? That he is adding depth to our leadership, increasing our capability to have effective ministry flowing from our lives? Oh, yeah. well, amen. Come on, as you're taking seriously the call to rise up as officers, you are beginning to learn, I mean like firsthand kind of experience, how leaders are birthed through the desperation of internal and external battles. Can anybody say amen? amen. Leaders are birthed through desperation, and desperation is first experience in fighting the battles with your internal enemies. This week, somebody say this week. this week, the gracious hand of our God has blessed us all with real life experiences of desperation. Can anybody testify to that? See, your first thought may have been that this week was full of all kind of external battles. And while that may be true, it soon became clear to you, just like it became clear to us that this week has been filled with internal battles. You may have also thought that this was just your internal battle alone. We're your pastors. We have the privilege of learning what everyone's battles are, and we want to tell you, you are not alone in your fight against hey, internal man. battles. Look, it's, uh, it's one thing to read passages about Moses on the backside of a desert, looking at the backside of sheep. Feel like he was receiving the backside of a raw deal from Pharaoh. That's true. But the truth is, is that God is dealing with Moses internal battles so that he could victoriously face the external battles that were to follow. So, right now, as you're hearing us talk about this, you may be saying in your heart, you know, but that's Moses, Pastor. I mean, he's. He's so much more and a far greater man of God or woman than I am. But this, this is me. I mean, it's different when I'm feeling this kind of desperation. But we want to tell you this morning, no. It's not different. It's not different at all. Because this is exactly what officers have always felt like. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to pick up in verse 9. Is everybody there? Okay, close. And there. 2 Corinthians 1, 9 says, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. This was just a pashat slap in the face for me while we were studying. I had always just relegated this feeling, meaning the sentence of death, to Paul and Paul alone. It was Paul and his companions. He says, we 
felt we had received the sentence of death. Remember how Pastor Wade said, yep, you're not alone when facing these internal battles and being <laughs> developed through desperation? Well, here we see in Paul and his companions that they were in a slight situation of desperation, right? I mean, it's Sounds just like. a sentence of death that's going on. It's not near as bad as, I don't know, my financial condition this week. Or, you know, the health issues I may have, the irritable bowel syndrome or whatever else in between. And, sure, <laughs> and surely, this is far lesser than all of my first world inconveniences I experience multiple times a day. Man, when it comes to the sentence of death, you want to talk about desperation? That's desperation. Praise God, Paul did not conclude his thought at just saying that they felt the sentence of death. Look how the verse continues. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. That there's an actual purpose in those moments of desperation, even if it means that you have the sentence of death in your heart. Which includes there's probably some credibility that is proposing that. That we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Oh yeah, that. Verse 10 is important. Follow it with me. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril. Yep. Say has delivered. Has delivered. And he will deliver us again. Say will deliver us again. Will deliver us again. Meeting in their current situation. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Say who will continue to deliver. Will continue to deliver. We want you to take heart, dear church. The same desperation that formed men of God like Abraham, like Moses, or Gideon, or Ezra, or Paul, is what is shaping you into the leaders and officers that you must be. Each of these men were birthed into leadership in the midst of difficult outward circumstances, but it was their glorious pursuit of internal victories that made them who they are. They won their internal battles and became unstoppable with every outward circumstance that they faced. And the great news is, is so will you. Can somebody say amen? All right. So that we're making ourselves clear. We're going to ask you a direct question. Are you ready for it? Why is desperation needed to birth leaders? Think about it. All right, not too long. We'll give you an answer. The answer is, desperation is designed by God to drive out and defeat your internal enemies. It brings to the surface what is hidden, obscure, and ambiguous to you. Have you ever considered that moments of desperation this week, meaning facing your internal battles, was the will of God for it to happen? And it was his will so that you can now know what the real internal enemy is. Well, there are a variety of internal enemies that we face. But there is one that is most prevalent in all of us this week. Because this enemy has been battling 
all of the people in this room. And because this enemy is the singular enemy that has posed the biggest threat to this body of sold-out, spirit-filled believers. Would you like for us to identify what this enemy is? We're going to get there. We are identifying this enemy as public enemy number one. The title for today's message is public enemy number one. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to put out an APB, an all points bulletin for every squad member in this church. We're going to send out a clear call and give you a character sketch of this public enemy number one, whose name is fear. Fear. Now we're putting out this APB not for the purpose of apprehending, arresting, sequestering, or even making a raid on their home in Mar-a-Lago. But rather, we're going, to, we're going to make all-out war on this public enemy, number one, fear. So that it is driven back into the depths of defeat exactly where it belongs. Come on, this is going to help us to identify this public enemy, number one, inside of us. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20, we're going to look in verse 1. Somebody say public enemy, number one, as you're turning. Come on now. Deuteronomy 20. And verse 1 says this, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We want you to notice a few things here, and as it relates to you and to me right now and today, before any external enemies are faced. The number one enemy to dealt with in the officers is their fear. There's no explanation of battle tactics, no uh, delivery of armor men or some type of strategic alignment. Moses begins with addressing the internal enemy of fear within his officers. See, he is well aware of what is in the heart of man when facing tasks that are greater than their own strength. Do you know how he knows this? Because he too had to deal with the exact same thing. He had the personal experience on the backside of the desert, as Pastor was saying. See, Moses won over this enemy and knows that each one will need to have the same victory before they can truly be victorious externally. I mean, I imagine that most heard this charge and said, no, you're right. Yeah, it is true. I will not be afraid. God is with us and look what he has done with us and for us in the past. Now, there was probably a few in the crowd that were kind of stuck in denial, saying, I'm not afraid. I'm not weak like that. I mean, that may be your number one issue, Pastor, but that's not my number one issue. So let us help you. Because that's what we're here for. We're going to put an example from this week in this church. You've been hearing the call to rise up. To be an officer, every single person, every single family is feeling and hearing the call of God and the drumbeat as it goes forth. And there are some that immediately get paralyzed with fear that you cannot do it. I mean, pastor, I'm already worn out. 
at the pace and what we're expecting to do right now. I mean, how am I supposed to run with these horses? How am I supposed to run and become an officer? Others have resorted to a defense tactic through the means of being offended this week. You didn't realize that your offense was connected to your fear. I mean, don't the leaders of this church already see the value of who I am and they're asking me to do more right now? I mean, do I even get the credit? Do they even know what I'm already doing? Or they're just presuming that I'm not and I've got to do something more. Still others have resorted just to straight up isolation. Just, you know what, I'm just going to go hide somewhere. Not wanting to draw closer for greater preparation, preferring to try to achieve an isolated perfection, which, by the way, is no perfection at all. It's almost like you're burying your single, isolated talent and not seeking to expand your capabilities. The net impact of that is you start falling prey to comparing and measuring yourself with yourself, which is not only unwise, but it's completely riddled with fear. Is this resonating a little bit? Okay. So what Moses does here is he takes a very strategic approach to address public enemy number one of fear. And he says, you shall or you will not be afraid of them. What he's doing here is that he's speaking to their hearts in a future tense. It's not just a charge for God's people to try harder, work more. Have greater willpower to not be afraid. Just don't. Well, that's not really helpful. This is a declaration that they will not be afraid. It's proclaiming a certainty, a confident certainty, that they will win the internal battle with fear. And Moses goes on to state why they will not be afraid. You will not be afraid because the Lord your God is with you. Moses is boldly declaring that they will not be afraid in the future because there is evidence that God is presently in their midst. He's with them. And this God that is presently with them, he has something. He has something that is a victorious track record in what he has has already done for them. He is the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He's pointing backwards and saying, look at what God has already accomplished. The God present, I'm sorry, the God who has given them great deliverances of the past, the God who is with them in the present, will give them great deliverances in the future. Remember what we read in Corinthians? That he has delivered us that he will deliver us again now, and he will continue to deliver us. The whole point that Moses is stating is the evidence that it is him, it is God that is with them, and that is the cause for them to not be afraid. Okay, so we're one, one verse into Deuteronomy 20. We're one verse in. Are you already starting to see some things that have been happening in your life this week? It's already addressing some things. Look at verse 2. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. 
For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Notice that it is the priest that comes forward to speak the very things that were spoken to the leaders of Israel. But did you catch the progression? The uh, quick character sketch of public enemy number one here. It starts with feeling a little faint in your heart. I'm just a little nervous. Just feeling a little faint on the inside. A little verklempt here. This is the first sign of fear. Then it quickly progresses from the realization that you are in fact afraid and that you are battling right on into straight up panic. (laughs) From faint to fear to now, ah, I don't know what to do, I'm panicking. Which then leads you into the dungeon of dread. Right here in the verses before us. The word of God says, do not fear or panic. Do not dread. Why? Because the Lord your God is he who goes with you. And he will fight for you to give you defeat. (laughs) I'm sorry. I made a mistake there. That must have been public enemy number one speaking. (laughs) See, God goes with you and fights for you to give you victory. It seems kind of absurd that we would say that he would go with us and fight for us to give us defeat, doesn't it? But isn't that what we do? We acknowledge God is with us. I mean, look at what's going on. He is here and his character is incredible. I'm going to stand on his character. And yet we then immediately forecast failure. Look, if y'all aren't gonna if y'all aren't gonna answer better than that, I'll just go preach to myself because this is right. See, <laughs> the fear in us does not seek to fight for us; it fights against us. It doesn't seek to give us victory; it seeks to bury us into despair and defeat. More aptly put, it is not of God. Ultimately, we have to come to grips with the fact that our fear is really an indictment of God's character. Because it's the antithesis of trusting him. He's telling us today to trust him. Or in other words, to fear him only. To fear him and him alone. And that gives us the ability to defeat public enemy number one. So what is the beginning of wisdom? Fear the Lord. Lord. What is the beginning of knowledge? (laughs) See, having fear of the Lord is rightly placing what your heart is feeling. In those moments whenever you are giving in to public enemy number one of fear, you're looking to the wrong leader of your spirit, soul, and body. This morning we're going to redirect where that fear is to be placed. We're going to no longer indict God of error and call it something other than error. See, when Pastor Wade is speaking about that switcheroo of victory, right? I stand on God's promises. I know his character. I'm celebrating everything that God has done and seeing all of the testimonies in our church and in our very lives. But the very next task that requires more than you expect, now you predict total and utter defeat. We're going to pick up our souls this morning. We're going to raise our level of trust 
to heavenly levels and let our eyes be fixed on him alone. In one of our recent services, we heard the prophetic word given to us during a worship service. And that word was, rise up and trust that he will fulfill the calling he has given you. So in order to rise up and trust, you must be able to identify how fear is stealing your confidence to rise up and trust. So from our own personal engagement with the word, from our interactions with the Lord and with you, we have seen how the enemy of fear can be identified in three primary areas. So take a look at this next slide with us. Number one, a facet of public enemy number one is fear of the past. So fear of the past desires to paralyze your confidence by getting you to focus on how you have failed over the course of time. Looking back and with certainty declaring that you do not have what it takes to be a qualified officer or to the extreme, you no longer have a purpose in this church or in God's kingdom. No. And it comes through very specific statements that go on the inside and eventually make their way on the outside. By looking at that fear of the past, you begin to say to yourself, I missed it. I mean, look. Look at all this history of how much I've missed it. I miss God's will in this moment. I miss an opportunity to do what's righteous in another moment. I had wrong discernment. It led to me being able to be manipulated. I made commitments outside of God's shalom. Well, I want to point to somebody in the Word who did some of those things, same things in his past. But he wasn't overcome by the fear of the past. It's a little-known character named Joshua. And it's Joshua in his interaction with the Gibeonites, right? Raise your hand if you're familiar with Joshua's interaction with the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites are inhabitants of the land of Canaan. In fact, they're neighbors, near neighbors, to where Israel is camped at Gilgal. And they deceptively present themselves to Joshua and the leaders as a tribe and a clan that is far away, and they're in a, a desperate situation and just need help. Well, after seeing all of the surface presentation of the Gibeonites, their worn clothes, their dilapidated state of supplies, their bread was dry and crumbly, like the ESV says, Joshua and the leaders take the bait. They take the bait and agree to give them some of their own provisions, but go a step further and make peace and make a covenant with them. To extend and set up shalom and be in a covenant bond with them. Well, it just so happens that three days later after they do that, it is revealed that they were a neighboring Canaanite tribe right next door. And everyone was furious. You tricked us. You deceived us. And so, therefore, because we're going to honor God, we're not going to break our promise and our covenant. So you guys, Gibeonites, you're going to be woodcutters and water carriers in the house of God. Well, things just didn't stop there, right? That was a mistake. Now they're working towards a solution that still honors God. And there's a potential for the fear of the past to emerge. 
and begin to cast doubt that they can continue to lead the nation. Well, this is brought to a, a higher level of fever pitch. In Joshua 10, it's five kings of the Amorites then conspire to come and attack Gibeon because they made this covenant alliance with Israel. And there's a great amount of fear in these Amorite kings that this will only strengthen and embolden a resistance, opposition, and annihilation of them. What the Amorite kings didn't know is that that was God's plan the whole time, even without the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites put out a call. They sent out a beacon of help. Hey, don't relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. There is a clear and imminent threat to their existence, and they're calling upon that covenant and shalom that was established. Now imagine if you're Joshua or one of the leaders in this moment and the report comes. Man, this would be an opportune moment for fear of the past to paralyze you. Look, I missed it in the past, and I'm not qualified to now lead or go to war. Who am I to be able to stand up and defeat these oncoming enemies? What if I am going to be manipulated again and make another huge mistake? These thoughts could very well be working through your mind if you're standing in their position. But it wasn't with Joshua. So everybody turn to Joshua 10. We're going to pick up in verse 7. Say public enemy number one as you turn. Public enemy number one. So Joshua went up from Gilgal. Another way to say that in another translation is that Joshua marched up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So here's what Joshua's doing. What makes, makes him rise to his feet and get to marching in confidence and not in fear? He's able to look at how many times God has been faithful to strengthen him as he rose to his feet. And he rose to his feet in faith by looking back at the battle of Jericho. That was a tremendous moment of God's supernatural hand of victory. And then immediately after, there is a loss at I due to Achan's sin. And when he was on his face and mourning and grieving over that loss and not sure, I can't detect exactly what caused this, God said, kum. He said, get up. Rise up. What are you doing down on your face? That's not how you fix a problem. Get back up on your feet. I haven't disqualified you. The responsibility is still on your shoulders, son. After rising up, receiving instruction and encouragement from God to set an ambush, he and his men win and decisively defeat the town of Ai. After that, he goes up and renews his covenant with God at Mount Ebal. After renewing that covenant at Mount Ebal, then occurs the deception by the Gibeonites. 
Do you see a pattern of success, failure, success, failure, success, failure? This is all meant to establish a testimony of God's faithfulness, not a display of our own strength. Joshua has learned that no amount of previous failure will stop God from being his testimony. This became Joshua's testimony as well, and he clung to it with strength, surety, and power. Church, are you catching this? You catching that a fear of the past? You know what a fear of the past causes you to do? Only focus on all of your failures. You're not thinking about how many times you can listen to that list and hear success and then failure. I keep hearing no matter what Joshua did, God was able to bring about success for him. I hear the testimony that God was with him, that he was fighting for him, that he was helping him to win. Evaluate this when you're thinking about your public enemy, number one. When you think about the past, do you only think about what you weren't able to do? Do you only think about your failures? Are you able to rise up and hold on to a testimony that says, even though I didn't know what I was doing, he helped me. Even when I made a mistake, he was more than enough. That is what we are going after today. So we're going to give you a clear solution. But before we do, let's revisit the words from the Lord in verse 8. God told him, do not be afraid. The Lord goes with you to fight for you, or meaning that he's given them into your hands. A man will not stand before you. Why? Because God is standing with you to give you victory. So here's the solution. The next slide. Rise up to take hold of your testimony. So the question is, how do you rise up to take hold of your testimony? Here's how. You firmly plant your feet on the testimony of God's faithfulness to deliver you over and over and over again. That what far outweighs any failure is God's faithfulness to bring you to a point of success and victory. You rise in a confidence that beats on your chest and it shouts in the face of fear, I'm not afraid of my past failures. Because there is more evidence of God's hand to use me and deliver me more than the moments of my defeat. That's a good word. Church, when you're able to rise up and take hold of your testimony, you show that you are only fearing the Lord and not your past. That's not the focus is what you've messed up on, but his goodness to get you to where you are and, and do that in a powerful way. Look, public enemy number one started off with a fear of the past. Another thing that we have observed in our own lives this week is fear of the present. Let me talk to you from my own life about fears of the present. See, a fear of the present seeks to steal from you even the current victories and goodness of God. I mean, you are winning. Is anybody in this house winning? Is anybody in this house growing? Come on now, you people are being infused with the character of God himself. He is with you right now. He's calling you to rise up. He doesn't do that for people he is ready to discard. He is calling you because he sees something and is infusing his character in you. So now's the time that I want to be afraid? Now. Now, when he's actually moving, when he's actually calling, when it's clear that he's with me, now's what I want to be afraid? No! Now is the most glorious of seasons. And yet public enemy number one is there. In my own life this week, here's what it sounded like. 
And I shared this with our pastors and elders on Friday evening. Man, I love my team. Man, I really love my church, but I love my team. That is a fantastic place to go and get ministered to and minister to each other. Here's what I shared with my brothers. I know that I'm winning, but I'm pretty sure that I'm messing something up and I don't even know it yet. I mean, I am praying and reading the Bible and I'm, with, I'm doing exactly what God put me on this planet to do, but I'm pretty sure that I'm waiting for a giant shoe to drop right on my face that I don't know about. So I'm kind of always leery. I have a good day and they're like, how was your day? And I'm like, I think it was good. No, it was fantastic. I'm just afraid that I didn't do something right. Why is it? This is the question I asked myself this week. Perhaps it will also apply to you. Why is it that no amount of evidence of God's faithfulness to me and my family, no amount of prophetic words, miraculous displays, or world-class teaching can seem to drive out this fear that I'm doing something wrong even when I'm striving for the Lord in every way. And here's the answer that I came to this week. It's because my fear is idolatrous inside of me. I am trusting the feeling that I'm not doing it right and I'm, gonna, and I'm really going to ultimately fail even though I'm doing everything I know how to do. I am exalting this fear above the reality of what God has said. Which actually causes me to not see my true state and anything that does need to get fixed, I'm not catching it because I'm too busy like a little squirrel looking all over the place trying to find something instead of trusting my God and my brothers that they'll just point it out if I need it. Amen. Hey, brother, what are you doing? Don't do that. Amen. Thank you. It's almost like what I'm dreading starts to come to pass because of my own wicked behavior. Did y'all see how simple that solution was? Hey, brother, don't do that. Do this. Okay, got it. The reason that we were kidding around earlier about Deuteronomy 20 is because I realized that that is what I would say internally. The Lord is with me. The Lord is fighting for me. And he will only bring about defeat. Oh, I would never say that out loud of my mouth, but my fear is actually causing my behavior to look that way. Turn with me to Numbers 31. Numbers 31. I, we got to show it to you from the Word of God, and this is going to be a blessing to you. It's like we're doing the character sketch of public enemy number one, so you can see what he looks like. It's not going to be the crayon kind that looks like an alien. It's going to be an actual portrayal of what this dude looks like. Numbers 31 and verse 7. They, the Israelites, warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed every male. Yes. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba McIntyre, right there. No, sorry. Wrong translation. The five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. So take this. God has told Moses that he needs to avenge God's people for what uh, against the Midianites and what they had done. 
They had sent their women to join and create sexual impurity in the people of God. They were trying to taint it. And what is happening here is God saying, go get them. Go get every enemy. And these men are going out. 12,000 strong, 1,000 from each of the tribes, and they are putting to death every warrior, every soldier that they come in contact with. More than that, they're putting to death the kings, the leaders, the archonic forces that are there. More than that, Phinehas, according to Jewish tradition, kills Balaam with the sword. You know, the same Phinehas that had speared the couple back, which is what started the whole problem? I mean, we're getting it done. We are fixing things that have been out of order. Look at verse 9. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and even their little ones. And they took as plunder all their cattle, all their flocks, all their goods. Somebody say they're winning. They are conquering the warriors. They are taking the spoils and the plunders of war. But there's a fear of the present that's here. Skip down to verse 13 with me, and I want to show you something that personally applies to each of us today. Verse 13, Moses and Eleazar the priests and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. You know why? Because they had just come from war and they're like literally covered in blood. They are warriors. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army. For those of you who like reading Dake's annotated works, he says that Moses was only listed as being angry with Israel seven times in all of the years that he led them. I'm sure he was angry more than seven times, but the word of God only says seven times, and this is the seventh time right here. I got room for for a lot of growth. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, who had come from service in the war. So literally, Sword still in hand, still dirty. If you're like me leaving Tom's yesterday, full of, of, uh, <laughs> of all kind of dirt and mud. <laughs> and what is happening here is Moses says to them, have you let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones. And kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. Well, that sounds very harsh, doesn't it? No, it does not. See, what the men did not know and what Moses and, and the leadership here, Moses and Eleazar, had to point out to them was they were still living in sinful sympathies. They were still going, hey, we'll kill the men, but there are some of this we haven't inquired of the Lord, but we're going to just keep it back for ourselves. We're going to take care of the women. I mean, who really goes out and does that? We're going to take care of the little ones. These are self-determined actions. Now, here's the thing. They could have easily become offended. By the way, let me just address this while we're here. Do you know why you get offended? You get offended because of fear. It's true. But what happens is you're already afraid of something, and you read someone else's actions to actually agree with your fear. I'm afraid that I'm not going to be able to do this. And you think that somebody's actions confirm that, and you go, oh, how could they think that about me? I'm the only one that's allowed to think that about me. You get offended 
because the fear that was deep down and hidden inside of you gets exposed. Particularly, what a, a, a very strong commonality is it, it's a fear of not being valued, being valued in the present. So that is transferred to a masking of pride and wanting to exalt yourself to not feel insecure in it and not valued. So anytime someone begins to give correction or even just strong direction, immediately that pride wants to defend the root issue of fear in the present. God has put you in the right place for you to be able to overcome the public enemy number one inside of you. You know what helped me this week is I went and I thought about the goodness of my God and I thought about the brothers who are around me. If I am walking in something that I shouldn't, I promise you the men that I'm associated with do not have any problem of going, brother, stop. This is what Moses did. Hey, guys, you've got sinful sympathies going on. Stop it and go take care of it now. And you know what these men did? Yes, you're right. We will do exactly as you say. And they went and took care of it. They didn't bother with wallowing in fear or wallowing in offense. They just got about the business of winning over every present enemy. Every one of them, not just some of them, not just most of them, but they got to every enemy that was before them and they did what they were supposed to. Let me say this a different way so that we can understand the solution to the fear of the present. You got to run straight into the responsibility that God has given you because God is faithful to use desperation to help you to solve this. This fear of the present, you know what you do? You turn and you immediately get to the work that God has put before you. You know what that does? That honors God above your own fear. That says, I trust you more than I trust the way I feel. I will get about the business of doing what you said, Lord. This battle has become one of my favorites in Numbers 31. It is so supernatural of a battle that by verse 49, you hear something that is unheard of in warfare. The people of God did not lose one single soldier in the battle. They did not lose one officer. They did not lose one man of war. They did not lose one individual at all of the 12,001. 12,000 men plus Phinehas that were out there fighting, not one man was lost. And they amassed incredible spoils of war. So how do you run into responsibility? How do you do it? I can tell you that and help you out. you got to take immediate action. Instead of taking correction and letting that act as a trigger for your fear, you take the correction. You say, yes, you are right. I will do exactly as you have said. You don't need to understand it, by the way. Your fear causes you to think you don't understand it, as if that's the issue. Oh, I don't understand what you're saying. I, I think that those details, shut up. Shut up. Public enemy number one is designed to keep you from doing what you're supposed to do. You know how I'm going to defeat public enemy number one? I'm going to turn and I will begin immediately doing what I already know that God has told me to do. See, fear of the present points to all the things that you lack and why you shouldn't do what God told you to do. Fear of the past tells you and only reminds you of that which you failed on and not God's goodness. Fear of the present says, I'm now going to focus on what I don't have instead of the 
incredible, miraculous things that I do have. You do have the Word of God rich in this house. You do have stones that you should have in your pocket. Do you know what's happening? When you're fearful of the present, you know what you don't do? You don't pull this out of your pocket and actually look at the Word. You think about all the things you don't have instead of going, I have the Word of God, literally, that he has given me, tailored to my own thought, to my own Nabal traits, I will look right here and do exactly what he said. Let me encourage you in your path towards officers, becoming officers. Officers are those who are really faithful to do the fundamentals. Where did I pull this out of? My pocket. Because as one of your officers, I pull out my stones and I read the word of God instead of just, let me try harder not to be afraid. <laughs> what? I'm going to try harder not to be afraid. If you could try harder, you would already not be afraid. If that was the solution, you'd already be winning. Stop it. Run immediately to the action. Run straight into the responsibility. Because when you run straight into responsibility, you're showing that you only fear the Lord and not your present. We're trying to help paint a picture for you. We're trying to help show you and un uncover things that have long since been with you, but now that you can see them, you have a solution and you know exactly what you must do to conquer it. So when you run straight into responsibility, you show that you only fear the Lord and not your present condition. Well, that's two. Let's go to number three. Number three, fear of the future. Yeah. Sounds like we're preaching to you to Michael. Actually, we're preaching to ourselves and all of you guys. Fear of the future has a sentiment that says, I will miss what is needed to accomplish God's will in the future. And it's, it's forecasting that overall you're going to miss your call. And then it cascades further into the dread of if I miss my call, then that means my children are going to miss their call as well. I'm going to fail. We're going to fail. Everybody's going to fail. <laughs> fail, fail, fail. Although there has been countless miraculous victories that have proven that God is sustaining your future. Countless healings. Countless areas of growth. I mean, we just stop for a second. And we, we've been saying this a lot between the leaders. Do you know the, the level of problems that we deal with now as pastors of you guys compared just to five years ago? We are dealing with problems that are on a much more mature level. We're dealing with problems that are the result of people who are striving to put into practice what they see modeled in us and the words that God gives us for you. That was not the case five years ago. It was on a much, much yuckier level and not on the capacity of maturity that we now see present in our church. So coming back to fear of the future, right? So this further extends to what happens now after you have received what has been promised. So let's just talk about this stage here. 
every service we see kids. And every single one of these children that God has put on this stage is a promise fulfilled. And at some point, they were not yet existing on earth, and you were praying and hoping for them to be a promise that would come about. And here they stand. But do you notice how in your own heart there that fear of the future? Now that they're in hand, now they're a sign and symbol of God's faithfulness, there's an immense amount more of fear of their future. Well, many, hey, many of you guys are starting homeschool this week. Boy, that's free of fear of the future, right? That that very child that was fought for, prayed after, and supernaturally gifted to you as a sign that God is with you and will take care of your future, now you're totally crumbling and breaking down because you are sure at the age of four you're going to ruin their entire mental capacity for the rest of their life. He got y'all so good. <laughs> Is it clicking yet? How is it that we get so caught up in the fear of the future? It's because that fear of the future wants to make war in our confidence and cause us to want to try and control what that future looks like. And that's a, that's a, a dichotomous wrestling also with a lack of your capacity to continue in the future. Because that fear of the future will whisper in your ear and says, yeah, I know all this prosperity has been there. You got these children. You got this spouse. You have all of this blessings that God has given you. But it won't continue. It's going to stop. You will run out of strength and ability. And listen to me, time. At some point, your time is going to run out. And all this is going to come to an end. So, in fact, after David had numerous successful victories, he raised up a mighty army of valiant men. He filled the storehouses of the, of the kingdom of Israel with treasures, and he put to death remnants of giants in the land. There is still the fear of failure in the future that he had. Yes, yes, I see what success we have now, but what about when I am gone? What will happen with all of the success that has been built so far. Let me just make sure that the strength of my own right arm will provide for the future. And this acts to lure you into a self-assessment of your own ability to endure rather than reliance on God's continued provision to fulfill His promises. Look with us in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. We want to show you this from this passage. First Chronicles 21 and verse 1 says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. See, the same compulsion that David had to ensure his future because of a public enemy number one inside of him is the same type of compulsion that causes us to worry, to plan, and ultimately to dread that which lies ahead. I mean, I need to know, don't I? Nope, that's fear. I mean, I need to know how this thing is going to work out. Nope, that's fear. I need to be able to see. To, nope, that's fear. This type of fear of the future causes us not only to become myopic, but selfishly so. 
We then only think about what we know, what we can do, and what we can, quote, unquote, cause to happen. Let's pick up in verse 3. But Joab replied, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? See, God has proven his ability to supernaturally provide and multiply all of the God-ordained ability, the koach that David needed. And let's self-reflect on this, that we need. That God has given more than enough for me and my generations. More than enough for all of us. But public enemy number one brings guilt upon us when we leave this unchecked, undealt with, and unaddressed. So what is the solution? The solution is this. It's to turn your focus and look at making them mighty. See, that fear of the future wants you to be myopically focused on making yourself mighty. You pour all of your efforts at how you will continue in your strength. The way to fix that is that you get your eyes off of you making yourself mighty, and you put your eyes on everyone else to make them mighty. Making others mighty requires that we pay full price every time, all the time, that we give all, that we sacrifice all, we serve all until all are made mighty. This is what David did, and this is why he was able to defeat his public enemy, number one. First Chronicles 22, right after this story, goes on, and you see in verse 2 that David gave orders. He assembled foreigners residing in Israel, and from among them he appointed stonecutters to prepare, dress stone for building the house of God. He provides large amounts. He provides cedar logs. He provides plans for his son, and it ends in verse by saying, so David made extensive preparations before his death. Church, this isn't David's first attempt at making others mighty. I mean, think of Adullam to those men becoming mighty men. Here, David is making foreigners mighty by allowing them the highest of all honors to be able to have a part in building the house of God on earth. Church, If you don't see the implications for each and every one of us as foreigners who've been chosen and called to help build God's kingdom on earth, then then we're missing it, but I know that you're getting it today. We're defeating our public enemy number one every time we dedicate ourselves like King David to making others mighty. When you have overwhelming sacrifice, it leads to overwhelming provision for everyone else. That's what your sacrifices over the last few weeks are doing around the world. Overwhelming sacrifice leads to overwhelming provision for everyone else. And it does this including David's son. By the way, this is the type of planning and preparation that God looks at and is pleased with. Not a self-serving planning driven by fear of the future, but the planning birthed from sacrificial, kingdom-minded men who can clearly see the the direction that God is leading and making extensive preparations for others to be made mighty on every day that they've been given. When you make others mighty, you show that you only fear the Lord and not your future. Look, we are very confident you're starting to identify public enemy number one inside of you. This clarity and identification 
will cause some questions inside of you, just like it did for us. So a question such as, why is it that I keep getting this wrong? Why is it that I keep being filled with fear? Why is it so hard for me to trust God? It was so much better in the past. Why is it still in me? Why can I not see it? Why, why, why? The answer to this question of why is that fear is idolatrous. It's just idolatrous. It exalts itself against the knowledge and the character of God. And the way that God fixes it is that he uses desperation to drive it out. He uses circumstances that directly challenge the existence of that idolatrous fear. And when it is done rightly, that idolatrous fear will fall on his face and its head and hands will break off just like Dagon did before the ark. Fear is not of God. It is not from him. It is public enemy number one on God's list to defeat inside of you now. Let's look at how clearly and directly the Apostle John addresses this in 1 John chapter 4. It's going to give us a right perspective of the desperation and what it can do to defeat public enemy number one. 1 John 4, 18 says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love takes fear by the hand and goes for a walk. Perfect love drives out fear. <laughs> because fear has to do with punishment. The only one, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Somebody say no fear. no fear. In other words, it is possible to defeat public enemy number one. We are giving you solutions today, not so you can contemplate it, not so that you can coddle fear, but so that you can destroy it and be walking with no fear. You got to drive it out. You got to drive it out through the complete, perfect, mature love for our Father, and that comes from our Father. Fear has to be driven out by abiding in God's character, fearing Him and known other. See, John's clarity here is astounding. Ultimately, no matter what you think fear has to do with, the Apostle John says fear has to do with punishment. Punished for your past. Punished for your current inability. Punished right on into your future. Ultimately, fear is about punishment. See, our aim is to help you simultaneously drive out fear, but here's the key that we want you to get in our remaining few minutes together. You don't defeat fear by just focusing on the fear. You defeat the fear while replacing it with trust. You must repent from the fear and repent unto actions or you have not repented. We're going to help you to understand this. We're going to help you to get that the trust-grounded obedience that drives out fear is through the perfect love that our Father has for us and is perfecting inside of us. Look, we've armed you with exactly what you must do to defeat public enemy number one. Now we want to talk to you about the process that Jesus used to drive out fear in his disciples and equip them to trust him even more. So, but before we read the scripture, just want to make sure we're clear. How do you drive out fear? 
Trust. How do you drive out fear? Trust. Everyone turn with me to Mark 6.45. Say public enemy number one as you turn. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. As we begin this passage, you know what I see that is similar to what's happening in this church? God has been creating teams. He has been gathering disciples and making them get into the same group, a boat a fellowship. I was working it. I was working it. Da, 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 da. But can we all witness how much God has blessed us through team unity formation? That not only are we one collective body operating in Ichad, but we're finding even greater amounts of unity as God is apportioning our relationships together. He's making sure that we're not isolated. We're not independent, but fully dependent on the entire body to build itself up in love. Look at verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Church, we want to let you know that this is what the leadership of LCM is doing for you trying to get up high where God is and actually pray for you. And this is what all officers must learn to do. See, we are making it our point to devote ourselves to the word and to prayer so that you will become mighty. It is our great joy, honor, and privilege to sacrifice time, energy, and resources because as your leaders, we have no fear of the future. We are trusting in ourselves, and we know that because God has done it in us, he is going to do it in us collectively. All right, here we go. We're going to go to verse 47. Are you ready? And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And he, was, and he was alone on the land. He, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. Painfully. For the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them. So, putting, putting this together. From our time of prayer, we seek to oversee your lives being aware of your progression, being aware of what opposes you, and waiting on the Lord's command to come and give you aid. Have you guys experienced that in interacting with the pastors and with the elders of this church? This allows for there to be a moment of desperation that will birth you into a leader. It's not to your benefit for us to immediately run to your aid every time that you're in a desperate moment. Jesus stood on the shore and he waited until the fourth watch of the night. You know what time frame of the day that is in Jewish time? That's from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And this whole endeavor started before 6 p.m. the day prior. He labored in prayer. He toiled in intercession. He kept a watchful eye on the disciples while maintaining contact with the Father because his heart was always that they would experience desperation that would lead to trust. Jesus saw them. 
and he saw their painful struggle against the wind, an unseen spiritual force of opposition, and then he was moved to come near to them. His point was not to alleviate the struggle, but rather to be close to them to ensure their victorious outcome. Church, what we see in Jesus as the model is what your pastors and elders are, are striving to do, and it's what that you must do as an officer in the kingdom of God. Look at verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. The idea when you see a discipler, in this case, actually doing the impossible, when you see your discipler doing the impossible, it causes public enemy number one of fear to grip you with terror because of your past, your present, or your future. You're afraid that you are unable to have a walk that looks like theirs, seemingly effortlessly walking on top of every problem that you've ever drowned underneath. See, but there is a process of this that when you deal with your fear, you're able to become what your disciples are. Let's continue in verse 50. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So in your times of desperation and being subdued by public enemy number one, your discipler takes action immediately to defeat your fear with his words of comfort, strength, endurance, and encouragement. We would all do well to take note of what Jesus spoke to his disciples. It starts with the phrase, take heart. This phrase can mean in Greek to take courage, to take confidence, and it echoes the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 4. You were shown with these, verse 35, you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Beside him there is no other. From heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words from out of the fire. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and gave great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Moses is reminding them of the testimony of the past that they must take hold of. By his presence and his great strength, meaning his perfect love, he is able to drive out before you nations that are greater and stronger than you. This is the very sentiment that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples in this moment, to drive out the fear of the past with the testimony of God that they have to possess. In addition to the phrase, take heart, Jesus also says, it is I. Say that with me. It is I. He's reassuring them that he is presently with them, and there's no fear of their present situation. He is the one who sent them in the boat into the long hours of desperation. Did you catch that? Jesus sent them in the boat, was able to see them facing opposition, and he's the one who will bring them into their final destination. The phrase, it is I, is within the same context that it's found in Exodus 3.12. that says, and God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. See, God is reassuring Moses while on the backside of the desert and prior to his external battles that he is the one who sent Moses and it will be confirmed that the Lord was with him 
when he victoriously reaches that mountain yet again. So we're going to go to Jesus' final phrase to his disciples. It was, do not be afraid. Jesus is addressing the primary issue here. After he has given them the the previous two reasons to put their full trust in him. Again, Jesus is perfectly reflecting the Torah as he is addressing the hearts of men. He perfectly loved and is is pointing to a trust in future deliverances. So Exodus 14, 13 says, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Look, as we listen and contemplate these words that Jesus is saying to his disciples and that we are sharing with you, is that we are exposing public enemy number one that we will most certainly put underneath our feet and drive out. You should hear the call that you will, you will, you will. That hope of the future. Back to Mark in verse, uh, chapter 6 and verse 51 says, the story finishes with, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Not only did Jesus give them the tools to defeat their fear of the past and present and future, he also did not leave them alone to wrestle with it alone. He got in the boat with them, entered into their desperation, but only after it had the desired effect upon their hearts. The same is true of what he will do for each and every one of us, what he will do for your family, what he will do for the unity of your teams. And because he is the model discipler, it's what your leaders will do for you, and it's what you must do in ever going forward fashion as you become victorious over public enemy number one. And all of this is accomplished by the grace of God. So we're going to turn to our final scripture. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to pick up in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you hear the confidence in that statement? Does it include a sober assessment of his past? But is he confined and imprisoned and overrun by that fear of the past? Not at all. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The most moving part of what he said that has brought us strength this week, Pastor Wade and I, is that statement, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Look, we don't have to subject ourselves to fear that we need to be something other than what the grace of God has already made us, is making us, and the certainty of what he will do in the future. If God has chosen you, take confidence. Be without fear. This is what God has made you to be. There is consistent evidence that his grace to make me what I am was not without effect or display of his supernatural power. Paul's trust in God's ability to make him into what he needed to be triumphed over any fear of what he thought he could not be.
Church, what a powerful statement from the Apostle Paul. When you are like Apostle Paul and you're able to say, look, I realize what has happened, but I'm not bound by that. I know what God has made me, and I stand in its fullness right now, and I'm trusting that he will carry it on to completion. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Well, well, you're a pastor. Then you're still walking in fear, but we're going to conquer that today. You are supposed to be able to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am right now. I want to remind you of the ability to defeat public enemy number one in this final slide. When you have fear of the past, it is conquered as you rise up to take hold of your testimony. That means what God has done, not what you have done. How God has taken and moved you beyond your faults in the past and has empowered you, saved you, and helped you. For your fear of the present, no longer are you going to focus on what you don't have. The fear of the present is conquered as you run straight into the responsibility that God has given you. Your fear of the future is absolutely decimated and conquered as you begin to make every effort to make them mighty. Come on now. We're going to win today over public enemy number one. Please stand to your feet. So it's obvious, we made it well known and put our own personal examples, touched on yours as well, the idolatrous nature of fear. And it's obvious that we are to repent from fear, but that's only half of the righteous action. In repenting, you're repenting from, but also repenting to. And repenting from fear, we're going to repent to trust. And in looking at this slide, there's some very specific actions that we would like for you to do. In light of the first one, the fear of the past. What you are to repent to is to rise up and take hold of your testimony, but this is how you're going to do it. You're going to thank God for all of his victories in your past. If that has been you this week, I want you to come and stand here at the altar. Don't kneel at the altar. I want you to come and stand. Right here, for those of you who are coming, you're going to begin the commitment of trusting God when there is fear of the past by thanking him for all of his victories that he's already given you. When it comes to fear of the present, we repent too, running straight to responsibility. You do this by rejoicing that the Lord is currently with you and he has made you competent for the task. If that has been you this week, being subjected to the fear of present, come down forward and stand.
you guys can scoot in. Let's make some room. Fear of the future. To repent by focusing on making them mighty. Expressing a gratefulness to sacrifice all of who you are for the sake of others. If that has been you this week of being overcome by the fear of the future, please come down front. So let me remind you again, just so that we're all clear. If it is fear of the past, you're going to thank God for all his victories that he's already accomplished. If it's fear of the present, you're going to rejoice in what God is currently doing within you and how he's made you competent. If it's fear of the future, you're going to express gratefulness to sacrifice all for all to make them mighty. So as we begin to pray, I want you to take those actionable steps. Let it be vocalized out of your mouth from a place of trust that will triumph and drive out your fear. Mighty one, we repent from fear and we repent unto righteous action. Lord, you are causing us to be able to defeat public enemy number one so that we might continue to rise as officers. Lord, fulfilling your will, but each and every one be 